Good morning, everybody. Hope I'm finding you in the middle of a fantastic day. And today we are talking about 1 Samuel. Diving on into it, 1 Samuel is the ninth book of the Bible. It is the next book in the books of history. You've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel, which makes it the fourth book of the books of history. Uh, the author of the book of 1 Samuel is... Uh, not necessarily named in the book, but tradition records Samuel as being the primary author of 1 Samuel. You could see how they'd make that sense, right? But not the only author of the book of 1 Samuel, and 2 Samuel would require somebody else to be writing that, seeing as how that is when Samuel passes away. Uh, it was likely completed both by Samuel and other godly leaders of Israel who served through the end of the books of events, such as priests or even the high priest. Uh, maybe even David himself. But uh, the date of this particular book is unknown. We don't really know exactly when it was written, uh, but it was clearly written after the division of Israel and Judah in 931 BC uh, because the lands are often noted as separate kingdoms. Uh, because its contents don't reflect the later events of the exile to Babylon, it was likely completed prior to this event sometime between 931 and 722 BC. Uh, so what I want to do now <clears throat> is I want to look at the uh, outline of the book and see what all major events, because there are quite a few major events that take place in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel that is. And we see chapters 1 through 8 in 1 Samuel deal with God's prophet, priest, and judge. And that is what Samuel was. He was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was a judge. This is, in a lot of ways, a great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is considered prophet, priest, and king. Now again, a judge is not necessarily the ruler. The judge represents the ruler who is God. Uh, he speaks on God's behalf to the people, executes God's will for the people, and those sorts of things. So prophet, priest, and judge is as close a picture of Jesus as we're going to get for prophet, priest, and king that we see Jesus fulfilling in the book of Hebrews and in the book of Revelation. Uh, but in chapter 1, we see the birth of Samuel. And we see in chapter 1 is uh, his mother Hannah. And this is a beautiful story, and it's helped me and my wife out a lot during some tough times as well. But the story of Hannah, where she's barren and she can't have children, and uh, her husband has taken part in polygamy. He's a polygamist. So Hannah is barren. The other woman is not. And she has children, and she rubs it in Hannah's face. And Hannah begins to get really upset about this. And the husband comes along and says, let's just be honest, it was a stupid thing for him to say. He said, aren't I better to you than ten sons? No, man, you're not, okay? You're not better to her than ten sons. You're a husband and their sons, and those are two completely different things. And, and he was trying to console her, you can tell. He just did a really bad job of it. But Hannah is upset, she's distraught, and she prays and prays and prays. And once a year, they go up to the temple, right? And they go there to pray and make their sacrifices. And while she's there, she's, she's muttering to herself a prayer, but she's not saying it out loud. So Eli, who is the current judge and priest, 
thinks that she's drunk. He goes over to her and basically says, what are you doing showing up here drunk? Why are you doing this? And she says, oh, I'm not drunk. I'm just, I'm praying within my heart. I'm not saying it out loud. It's kind of an embarrassing situation for me. So he says, well, what's the matter? And she tells, and he says, well, you go home and you will, you will get pregnant. And so she goes home and through the course of time, as things do, how they do with married couples, she gets pregnant. And she gets pregnant and God answers her prayer. And she goes back and she says, while she was at the temple, she made a promise and said, God, if you'll give me a, a child, I will give him back to you and he'll serve you all the days of his life. And she says this thing, she says, for this child, I prayed and the Lord heard my prayers. And that's a verse that's been very special to our family for a very long time. Talk about our kids, Jacob and Lizzie. And a lot of times we say for these children, we prayed and we waited for a long time and the Lord did eventually answer our prayers. Uh, chapter two, we see Hannah's prophetic prayer. Like we talked about the boy Samuel in the temple in chapter two. And then we see in chapter three is the call of Samuel. Now, chapter three is a really special story where uh, Samuel, as a little child, is in the temple and he's sleeping and he hears a voice calling to him. He thinks it's Eli. So he gets up and he goes in Eli's room and he says, what? And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. So he goes back to sleep and it happens a second time. And he gets up and he says, Eli, what do you want? And he's, Eli says, son, I didn't say anything to you. Go back to sleep. And he goes back to sleep. And the third time it happens, he comes in there and Eli realizes what's happening. He goes, okay, the next time you hear that voice, I want you to say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And Samuel probably thinking, okay, it's a weird thing. Why wouldn't you just tell me now? But sure, I'll go in my room. He lays back down and hears the voice a third time. He says, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And all of a sudden, God starts talking to him. And it's a really amazing, incredible story. Uh, these chapters deal with the lamp of God going out in the temple and the places of worship. And uh, that's being symbolic of God and his fire leaving his people Israel. Uh, we see in chapters 4 through 8, the last judge and the first prophet. Or prophetic office, that is. Uh, we see the ark captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4. Uh, the word of God goes to, uh, to Samuel is fulfilled, and Eli dies, and his sons are slain. Now, the important thing to know about his sons were they were very corrupt. They did a lot of terrible things. They stole uh, from the temple, from the worship places. But the Bible says the worst thing they did was they made people dread going to the temple. They made people, or tabernacle, and dreaded people dreaded going to give their sacrifices. They hated going to church, basically is what we would equate it to today. And the worst thing that anybody can do, worse than teaching false doctrine, worse than, uh, you know, anything else you could do in the, in the church and your hypocrisy and that sort of a thing, the worst thing you can do as a servant to the Lord is make people dread coming to church. I've had pastors that made me feel uncomfortable about coming to church. I would dread going to church because I knew when I got there, the pastor would uh, make fun of me for something. He would find some reason to humiliate me. He would call me out from the entire congregation. It's like 100, 120 people. He would, I, you know, wore a SpongeBob tie one time. He told me how I couldn't call myself a Christian and wear that tie, that I should take it off and burn it right there in the middle of a men's prayer group. There's about 20 guys in that room. And he made me to dread coming to church. And I came to church anyways because I serve God, not him. 
But eventually God brought me to a place where I no longer had to do that. But I'm telling you, men like that will answer to the Lord one day because their great crime will be nothing more than they made people dread coming to church. And it's not just a pastor. Anybody can make people dread coming to church. So my question for you guys is, are you helping people enjoy coming to church or are you making them dread coming to church? And if you are, remember that you'll answer to that, answer to God for that one day. We see verses 5 and 6 is God judges the Philistines because of the ark. And the ark returned to Beth Shemesh in uh, chapters 5 and 6. And so there is a bit of a very interesting story there uh, with that going on. Let me adjust some things right quick. There we go. Okay, and then we see in chapter 8, Israel rejects God and demands a king. Now this is, they've looked at all the other nations and they want a cool king like everybody else has. They want to be like all the other kids. They want to be like the rest of the world. That equates to us very well this uh, morning, evening, noon, night, whenever you're listening to this. We want so badly to be like the rest of the world, right? We want what they want. We want to have what they have. They have the money. They have the cars. They have the house. They have all of these things. The, the cool nifty toys, and they have all of these things, and, and we get to the point we want to look like them. We want to dress like them, right, young ladies? Want to dress like the way all the rest of the young ladies are looking with the short shorts where you can see, you know, almost their entire leg. The only thing that's being covered are the uh, extremely private areas, right? And uh, ladies are wearing shorts that show their stomachs and uh, really tight shirts and things like that. We want to look like the rest of the world. Christians shouldn't look like that. Ladies, especially young ladies, should learn to accent your beauty, your countenance, your face. That should be the beauty that you're pointing people toward. And by the way, you can't get shocked and appalled when a worldly-minded man looks somewhere he shouldn't be looking if you're wearing clothes that accentuate those areas. We live in a world of sinful men. Even Christian men sometimes can't help but avert their eyes. We're only human people. We're all mortal beings. We're finite. And we need to be cautious about this thing of, I can dress however I want to, and men should just control themselves. They're not going to control themselves. They're going to do what they want to do. And you dressing the way the rest of the world dresses is going to get you what the rest of the world wants. And so we should be careful about this thing of looking like the rest of the world. We should be careful about this thing of talking like the rest of the world, too. Christians should not use cuss words. And if you do, you should be ashamed of yourself. Uh, the Lord's name is not to be taken in vain. There should be no profane words coming out of our mouth. That's a straight quote from the Bible. Refuse profane and vain babblings, for they will proceed unto further ungodliness. When you let yourself talk like the world, you will eventually begin to live like the world. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen over the week or the month or maybe not even over the year. But over the course of time, you letting yourself talk like the rest of the world will get you to the point where you live like the rest of the world. Christians should talk like Christians. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessings and cursings. Uh, doth a fountain at the same place bring forth sweet water and bitter? My brethren, these things ought not so to be, the Bible says. We should, uh, like Israel was toddling after the world, we should be careful about that. Uh, ourselves because we'll get what they got. If you look through Israel's history, anytime they want what the world has instead of what God offers, it's not good for them. 
But Israel rejects God and demands a king. And on a national level, this is extremely important as well because they had one of the greatest forms of government, not a, one of, rather, the greatest form of government in the earth's history. A lot of people like to think that democracy is the best version of history, which, by the way, we don't have a democracy. We have a republic, but that's uh, something for you to... Democracies basically mean the people decide everything. We have representatives, and those representatives, we vote into office, make the decisions. If we don't like it, we'll vote somebody else in. That fits more a republic than it does a democracy uh, in history. But I digress. Either one of these are not the ideal situation. The ideal situation is that your government is run by God himself. That God is making all the governmental decisions. How much should people be taxed? But Which, by the way, God was for a flat tax, 10% across the board. That's where we get tithes at today. His church should be run by the same way. 10% tithes, but unlike a government which forces you to pay your taxes, the church wants people to be cheerful givers, to tithe from the joyfulness of your heart that you're choosing to give to the church. But again, I digress. Because the point is, is that they had what's called a theocracy. A theocracy is that God is your king. He governs your country. How much better can it be than that? What a perfect form of government that God runs your country, that he is your king. And this is what they rejected. They rejected this. I mean, if they followed God perfectly as their king, they could have had a utopian society. And I would say that was the only form of government where that could even be possible. And I've heard people say about democracy, and again, I'm digressing again, but you're going to have to bear with me, that it is the worst form of government there is, except for all the other ones we've tried. And I agree with that, except for this one. The theocracy has been tried. It's just no longer available to us. You imagine having God as your king, having the literal perfect government, and then saying, no thanks, I'm just gonna, we're going to do this with a normal uh, person instead. We don't, we don't need God being our king and helping us out. We're just going to let a, a human being, hey Chuck, you want to be king? Yeah, God, can you step down? We're going to let Chuck be king for a while, see what he can do. How silly, how ridiculous. This is what happens in 1 Samuel 8, and Samuel's literally warning the nation. This is what a king's going to do. You bring a king in here, he's going to take your land, he's going to take your food, he's going to take your servants, he's going to take your children, he's going to make them into soldiers and fight his battles for him. He's like, are you sure this is what you want? And they're like, yeah, yeah, sounds good to me. Okay, and then God says this thing to Samuel. He says, they haven't rejected you from being king. They've rejected me from being king. And so it's a really special, really a, a amazing chapter. Real big turning point for Israel's history here. And then we come to, number one was God's prophet, priest, and judge. And then we come to number two, Satan's man. And this is how it's outlined here in chapters 9 through 15. Because he's not really Satan's man. At least not at first. Because at first it's God's chosen man. And God's chosen man in the form of this is who God chose. And he does follow the Lord for a while. But if you know anything about Saul, you know he really falls off the rails there after a while. Uh, chapters 9 and 10, Saul is received. And those chapters are really great. Saul's not out looking to become king. He's looking to go find the lost sheep that belonged to his father's flock. And him and one of the servants go and they try to find it. And they say, we can't find it. What do we do? And he says, uh, well, let's go see the seer. And the word seer is another word for prophet. So they go try to find the prophet in the city and it ends up being Samuel. 
and God tells Samuel before he arrives, this man's going to be king. And so Samuel starts grooming him to be king. That's chapter 9. Chapter 10, you see Saul sort of running from this. He's intimidated. He's like, I can't be king. I'm not. I'm just Saul, you know, just Saul. And he says, well, just Saul. God's chosen you. So clearly there's something special about you and God thinks so. Which, by the way, God's chosen you too. God's chosen you for something extremely special. And he's done so for a reason. So he must see something you don't see about yourself. You're doubting yourself right now, but God saw something. It's in there. Maybe it's down deep. I don't know. But it's there. And if you'll just let God work in your life, he will pull it out. And you'll succeed and you'll thrive if you'll just stop fighting the Lord and do his will and trust him to bring out the best version of yourself. That's what he wanted to do for Saul. Saul is anointed as the king there in verse, or not verse 10, chapter 10. Uh, we see Saul's reigning in chapters 11 and 12, his victory over the Ammonites and uh, the transfer of authority from Samuel to Saul in chapter 12. And then we begin to see Saul being rejected in chapters 13 through 15. And chapter 13 deals with Saul's rebellion against God. Unlucky number 13, right? And this is a story where Saul is told to go out and completely destroy completely destroy these people. Don't leave anybody left alive. Don't leave the cattle alive. Everything needs to die in this, this society. Uh, this was, by the way, a mercy killing. You say, how could God have people kill, you know, women and children? This is a mercy killing. They were sacrificing their own babies by fire anyways. And if one child survives from that society, that evil, that disgusting, horrible evil will continue to live through those children. So God's putting down a mercy killing. No more of this. It dies out right here, right now. But Saul had no problem killing the women and the children and the men. But he left some of the cattle alive. And that wasn't because he loved the cattle more than he loved the people. It was because he wanted to keep the cattle for himself. So he kept the cattle alive and then he tithed off of it. He took the 10% and he sacrificed it to the Lord. I think he even sacrificed more than 10% to the Lord. That's when Samuel shows up and he says, what did you do? He goes, hey, I tithed off of it. Get off my back. And Samuel says this thing to him, which is something I've never forgotten my whole life. He says, hath the Lord a greater delight in sacrifices than in obedience. And he says, behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. God isn't interested in you living your life however you want to, so long as you pay your tithe on Sunday. Right. God is not interested in you living however you want to, so long as you show up for church on Sunday. That's not what God is interested in. And if that's what you're about, you don't need to be coming to church. Church is for people that get excited about following the discipleship of Christ, learning about some new exciting adventure waiting for them along the journey of faith. That's what discipleship, that's what Christianity is all about. If you're about not obeying and listening to God and you just want to show up for church so you can feel better about yourself, why don't you feel better about yourself by obeying the Lord? Anyway, this is the lesson that Saul failed to learn. And that's where God began to reject him from being king because God saw Saul was never going to change. He was never going to repent and get right. Oh, sure, there was a few times throughout the history that Saul attempted to make people think he repented, but it wasn't genuine. It wasn't real. And we know that because it didn't stick. Your repentance isn't real if it doesn't stick. It's just words. Words are cheap. 
actions are where it costs you. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to follow through on your convictions? Saul wasn't. I hope we are. We see in chapter 14, a continuation of this thought is that Jonathan is responsible for the victory over the Philistines. Uh, he goes in after his father says, no, we're just going to sit here and pout. And he goes in and he gets the victory and Saul ends up taking credit for it. And so we see that that evil spirit of Saul really beginning to grow here, even in chapters 13 and 14. Then we see in chapter 15, Saul's glaring rebellion and disobedience regarding Agag. And this is what I was talking about earlier. Chapter 13 was something different. Um, rebel the relevant God, I believe that was the sacrifices he makes. He's about to go into war. Can't find Samuel. He doesn't know what he's doing. And in chapter 13, he makes the sacrifice. He's not a priest. He's not supposed to do that. So that's where he first rebels against God. Then you have chapter 14. And then in 15, it's the story where he keeps the animals and sacrifices them instead. Uh, so I did get those two mixed up, and I apologize. Uh, but in chapters 16 through 31, we see David is God's man uh, versus Saul. And we see in chapter 16 is David anointed. You guys, this is a beautiful story. I love this story where David, he gets up, uh, where David is chosen as king. Samuel's sitting around upset about Saul. And God says, how long are you going to sit and sulk over that guy? Get up and find me a, ne a new king. And he says, I want you to go to the house of Jesse. And I've already picked out a, a new king there. It'll be one of his sons. And he says, okay. He doesn't tell him exactly who because he wants to illustrate a point to him. And so Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and he says, I'm coming to sacrifice and I want to invite your family to the sacrifices. Okay, great. And so he has all of his sons lined up there and he takes the anointing oil and he stands before the oldest. Gosh, this guy looks like a king. He sounds like a king. You know, he's got the posture. He's got the demeanor. He's got the, the, that tone at which royalty should sound like. I mean, you could just picture this guy sitting on the throne, wearing the crown, holding the sword and leading an army. Man, this guy looks like a king. And uh, he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed and goes to anoint him. And God says, ah, 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 that's not him. He says, men look on the outward appearance. You're looking on his stature and his height and you've decided he's king based on those things. He says, men looketh on the outward appearance, but God says, I look upon the heart. Right? And people may judge you and look down on you because of your stature, because of your intelligence level, uh, because of your, your weight or your looks. But when God looks at you, he looks at your heart. That's all he cares about. What the rest of the world cares about, he doesn't care about. He cares about what's in your heart. So then uh, Samuel continues on and he says, well, if it's not him, it must be the second oldest. And God says, nope, it's not him. He goes all the way down to the last one. He, hold, he checks out the last one and God says, nope, it's not him either. And Samuel says, okay, something's wrong. He turns to Jesse and he says, are you sure these are all of your sons? And he says, well, you know, I mean, somebody had to watch the sheep, right? So little David's out there watching the sheep. Um, that's just what he does. David's a, he's a shepherd. He watches the sheep. That's what he watches the sheep. So he says, go get him. As a matter of fact, we're not even going to sit down until he shows up. So they all stand up. Somebody goes and fetches David and brings him back. This little ruddy redheaded kid, you know, not very old looks. He's got a baby face. I imagine. And he just looks like a kid. Everybody. <laughs> okay. 
And he probably even Samuel. Okay, not looking on the outward appearance. Right, got it. And stands before David, and God says, that's him. That's, that's your next king. That's my anointed king of Israel. I want you to anoint him right now. And so he pulls out the anointing oil, and he anoints David as the next king of Israel. But you know, nobody's impressed. Nobody even knows what this is about. It's just David. It's just little ruddy David. He's just a kid. He doesn't know anything. Man, oh, you guys, there's so many people. There's so many pastors out there in the world. You're going to answer for your attitude toward kids. They're unimportant because they don't tithe as much. That's the reason people pretend like kids matter because they want the parents to come to church, right? Oh, we care about kids here. We care about here uh, kids here at this church. And then you, you know, cut corners and you, you barely give the children's ministry what they need because kids don't matter to you because they don't tithe very much. You're going to answer for that, my friend. You're going to answer to God for that because that was how they treated David. Which leads us to chapter 17, David and Goliath. The famous David and Goliath. But what's even more crazy than the fact that David won is how crazy it still is to people that David won. People still can't believe it. They're like David and Goliath. That's the famous story of somebody has no business winning. You're just a dumb little stupid kid that should get out of everybody's way. And you won? That shouldn't happen. Yes, it should happen. And we shouldn't be so surprised about David and Goliath stories. Because David came with a giant of his own. He came with the giant of faith. He came with God. We shouldn't be so surprised with the man when, when a man with greater faith ends up winning. You know, we have a pessimistic attitude toward life, and we forget to include God in our battles. We do. We forget to include God in our battles. We look back after the fact, and we say, well, I'm a Christian. You know, I go to church, and I tithe, so why didn't God give me the victory? Because in that moment, in your battle, you did not include faith in your battle. You had strategy, you had all these things, but you did not include faith, and that's why you lost. And I believe that with my whole heart. Nobody's ever going to convince me otherwise. We lose battles because we lose faith. I believe that. Every time Israel lost a battle, it was because they lost faith or they forgot to include God. Even back in Joshua's day, they lost the battle of Ai because they forgot to include God. Every other battle, Joshua prays before he goes into battle, except for that one, and that's the one he loses. If we have faith, we have victory. Faith is the victory, as a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us. And then we see in chapter 18, sort of the the rewards of his victory against Goliath. Jonathan and David make a covenant. They become really great friends. Saul gives his daughter Michael to David. So many wonderful things happening to David because he won a battle and he won it with his faith. And then we see starting in chapter 19 is David's being disciplined. Uh, disciplined by Saul and not necessarily for very good reasons because we see in chapter 19 that Saul attempts to kill David again. And then in chapter 20, Jonathan helps David escape his father trying to kill him. How crazy is this? After everything that just happened, David escapes to Nob and Gath and is helped by the priests there who have no idea what's going on between him and Saul. And then in chapter 21, uh, 22, rather, uh, David gathers his men. They're in the forest. And then Saul slays the priests that helped David. 
he has a man. He tells his soldiers to go forth and slay him. And the soldiers say, no, 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 we serve you, but we also serve God. And if we slay his priests, I guarantee you there's going to be a reckoning. And they say, we're not, we're disobeying you, king. We're not going to slay any priests. And he has this worm of a man who told him where David went to in the first place. And he says, you go and slay the priests then. And he does. And they murder an entire city of priests and their families. Truly one of the bloodiest days in Israel's history. Uh, and then we see uh, David fights the Philistines in chapter 23 and how Saul pursues David as he's fighting the Philistines. David is literally out protecting the nation and Saul uses that as an advantage to try to kill David while he's doing this great thing. Truly Saul no longer has a heart, no longer has a conscience. Uh, Jonathan and David make another covenant. And then in chapter 24, we see David is in a position to take Saul's life. And God has given him permission to. He says, whatever you choose to do to Saul is okay by me. And he's in a position to take Saul's life. And instead, he cuts off the skirt of his garment and runs off. That's all he did. He cut off the edge of his skirt just to show him who's boss a little bit. But even that, he's, he's repentant of. He says, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. He goes back and apologizes to Saul. And Saul's in a position to die here. But he says, oh, David, I'm so sorry for what I did to you. Can you ever forgive me? And this is the first instance of one of those fake repentances that we talked about earlier. He's not really repenting. We know that because in the very next chapter, it uh, talks about uh, Saul against David again. He's pursuing David again. David's continuing to have to hide out from Saul. Uh, chapter 7 is also, or not chapter 7, chapter 25 is where Samuel dies. Samuel dies in chapter 25, and this is the story of David and Abigail. Uh, there in there that Abigail is his next wife after Michael had been forcefully taken away from David and made to marry another man. A tragic situation, but it's one of those situations not even David could do anything about. It's just the way life goes sometimes. It's tragic and it's unfair and it's difficult, but it is what it is. And through the course of time, David learned to love again and he learned to love Abigail. David again spares Saul's life in the wilderness of Ziph and chapter 26 is the next fake repentance. Uh, chapter 27, David retreats to the land of Philistia and sets up camp in Ziklag. Ziklag is in the land of the Philistines. However, it's an abandoned camp. So he's not dwelling with the Philistines. He's not helping them fight their battles. David's just borrowing one of their cities for him and his men to live in. And God truly blesses David in the land of Ziklag. And I'm going to park it here for a minute and talk to you for a second about how this has applied really well to my life. And hopefully this will be an encouragement to you if you find yourself struggling uh, a little bit with, I'm here, but I didn't ever think I would be here in this position in life. Uh, David never expected to live in a place like Ziklag, a ghost town outside of Israel in the land of his enemies. What do you think David felt about himself moving there for the first month or two? Must have been horrible. Must have really felt bad about himself. But you know, God blessed David there more than anywhere else he had been so far. And in my life, I know I felt the call of God to pastor a church. And so I went to my pastor at the time and told him, he 
made my life miserable and difficult. And for a long time, I told myself that was because he's trying to prepare me. He's trying to make me tough. He's trying to help me prepare for the ministry. But looking back on it now, that's not how you prepare a young man for the ministry. Uh, a lot of guys were intimidated by me, not because I'm so great or because of my prowess, but because a couple of churches I went to, I had quite a large family that went with me. And uh, probably an intimidating thing for a pastor to see a group of like 20 or 30 people following a young man who wants to be a pastor someday. I'll be worried about what I could do if I decided to try to take over their church. But unfortunately, these men were so caught up with what I could do, they never stopped to consider what I would do. You know, David was in the exact same situation that I was in. He loved Saul. He wanted to follow Saul and help him all that he could. But all Saul, Saul ever saw from David was an enemy. Pastors, at least a couple of them that I followed, all they ever saw from me was an enemy. When all I ever wanted to be was a help to them. So, like David, I found, I went out to sort of try to do my own thing away from them went out and started a church in Crum. And uh, I expected things to really take off in a big, bad way. And uh, they never really did. I expected growth to happen really quick, and it never did. I started to get discouraged. And then all this happened uh, with COVID and everything, and we started having church in my home. And I felt like I'd lost. It was over. Do we just call it quits here? Do we just close the doors? I mean, I'm having church in my home. I never wanted to be one of those guys. I was in my ziklag, man. I was feeling bad. I was like, God, why? Why am I here? Why don't I have a building somewhere? Why don't I have more people than this? What, what am I doing wrong? And you know, sometimes God will put things in our life to show us what we're doing wrong. Sometimes he just wants us to keep still for a minute because he's got a bigger plan in mind. You know, the longer I sat and I talked to my wife and I talked to my brother and my parents and, you know, they really encouraged me a lot and I prayed for a long time and it took me a while to get to a place where I realized there's nothing wrong with being in Ziklag. There's nothing wrong with taking what you have and making the most with it. I was feeling real bad about my Ziklag until I saw that God really is truly blessing us in great and amazing ways. You know, we're going to be able to do things that nobody's done before. We as a church, me as a pastor, is doing it different than nobody ever did. You know, the way it works nowadays is you go around, you raise support, and you start a church. But you know, that's not the way, that's not the old ways. I graduated from a school called Norris Bible Baptist Seminary. It was Norris slash Crown College at the time, but it was heavily influenced by a man named Dr. Norris who in I believe it was the 40s just shook this country for the Lord in a great way he did more in the state of Texas than most preachers do in their whole life and there was a quote on the wall of the school there and it said and I'm going to get this wrong but it said what's needed is for a man to start in a vacant lot with a Bible under his arm and build a church to the glory of God. That's what's needed. That's the old ways. You don't have any support. You don't have anybody holding your hand. 
You go out there with a handful of people that believe in you, take a Bible under your arm, and you start from scratch. You start with nothing, and you work your way up. You get there. Just you and God. You let God get you there. You don't worry about those other people. And you know what? That's what we're doing. That's what I'm doing. But until I get there, until I become a pastor of a church with a building, I'm glad being pastor of a church that takes place in this house. I don't mind being in my Ziklag. David was greatly blessed. He's, he, he grew in ways that he didn't anywhere else in Israel. He grew in Ziklag. If you're in your Ziklag today, don't feel bad about yourself. Just let God grow you where you are, and then you won't stay there forever. God will move you on one of these days, I guarantee it. David's in Ziklag now. And then we see in chapter 28, Saul begins to get really nervous about all this. So he goes to the witch of Endor and he summons the spirit of Samuel. And it sounds like something out of a fairy tale, doesn't it? But this is all real. This actually happened. Saul went to an actual witch and she actually conjured the spirit of Samuel. Chapter 29 is where the Philistines choose to leave David behind in battle as they're marching to this fight against uh, Saul. Of course, David doesn't, uh, I'm sure, and I believe that David's plan all along was to do exactly what they were afraid he was going to do, get in battle with them, and then make them fight on two fronts, make them fight Saul's men and David's men. I believe that that was his plan all along. I don't think he ever abandoned God's people. But then as he's coming back, him and the men are coming back from battle, they find that Ziklag has been sieged. The women and the children have been taken prisoner, and their homes have been burned to the ground. This is what they come back to from war. So in chapter 30, we see that David pursues the Amalekites and takes back their families. Houses can be rebuilt, crops can be resown, but the people cannot be replaced. And people, it is that David saved. They saved their families, their children, their wives. And in chapter 31, we see Saul, mortally wounded in battle, commits suicide. The tragic end of a once great king that chose to turn his back on God and eventually was dethroned by the former king of kings the former king of Israel, God himself. He was never former king of kings. He's still the king of kings. Let me get that right. But the former king of Israel, God himself, who is still the king of kings and lord of lords. Saul dethrones him, and now we're ready for David to step up. And next week, we'll be talking about 2 Samuel. We've talked about Christ in the book in a few places already, so I don't want you to feel like I forgot that, but Samuel was a picture of Christ in the book. The Ark of the Covenant is another picture of Christ in the book. Uh, David, of course, is a fantastic picture of Christ in the book. In David and Goliath and in many other places, you know, being pursued by his own countrymen, being attacked by Israel and God's people. And, of course, David being, you know, the Davidic Covenant and David being part of the bloodline of Christ himself. So that's it for this week, guys. I hope you've enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. Bye.